everyone, and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast series. I'm Naomi Baratera, your host, and it is my absolute pleasure to welcome you to our very first episode. Here at the Guild, I am part of the Lectures and Community Engagement Department, and our podcast will be drawing from all the different programs that we run in person here at Lincoln Center in New York City, including things like pre-performance lectures, artist interviews, and much, much more. So our goal is to bring you a variety of content as our podcast series develops. So without further delay, I will be your lecturer for today, and episode one will be entirely dedicated to exploring the opera that opened the Metropolitan Opera season this year, Verdi's penultimate work, Otello. Otello is one of my absolute favorite works. It is very close to my heart and there's just something about the music that reaches out and grabs you and pulls you right into the mind of the characters. So in our time together today we are going to delve into all the different musical and historical elements of the work to really draw out all the wonderful layers of things that make this opera so beautiful and so potent. So let's start with some historical background. Verdi revolutionized Italian opera in many ways. So in order to understand what he did differently, we need to know a little bit about what was happening before his rise to power, as well as the evolution of his musical style, since Otello was written at the very end of his output. The bel canto era is what directly preceded Verdi in the historical timeline. In the early 1800s, the operas of Rossini, Donizetti, and Bellini dominated the Italian opera stage, really defining the era of bel canto singing. And in this style, there was an emphasis on a long lyrical line and the beauty of the voice above all else. Although the reign of the bel canto trio came to a fairly abrupt end with Rossini retiring from writing opera in 1829, Bellini's sudden death in 1835, and Donizetti's institutionalization in 1845, the conventions they established really defined the landscape within which Verdi began his compositional life. And although the kind of singing prized in bel canto opera is one major aspect of the genre, there is also lower level structures that were established by Rossini that really dictated how operas were organized. These were essentially a set of rules that ranked the importance of singers and the types of roles within the work. So you may have heard the terms prima donna and primo uomo, literally translating to first lady and first man, or compromario, essentially meaning a supporting role or secondary role. These terms come from this era where essentially libretti were organized around the idea that prima donnas and primo uomos participated in a certain percentage of the vocal numbers 
including a certain percentage of arias and a certain percentage of duets with adequate time in between for them to rest, well, there was also sufficient ensemble numbers for the rest of the cast and whatever chorus there might be. And of course, there were other rules that needed to be observed as well, such as the prima donnas and prima uomos needed to have at least two grand duets, and there needed to be at least one multi-movement entrance aria and one culminating aria for the prima donna to end the entire opera with a big flourish. So it was Rossini who perfected this structure in which all these demands were met, and it really became the standard norm that librettists, those writing the text for the opera, would arrange the text according to these demands. And it's important to understand that in the bel canto period and throughout Verdi's career, the libretti were always written first. The composition of the music came afterwards. Added to this is the fact that Italian opera libretti were always written in poetry, not prose, and the poetry always followed traditional metrical structures. And metrical patterns always had a bearing on what kind of rhythmic structure a composer would then use when composing the music. This convention also lent itself well to dividing the libretti into set numbers, like recitatives and arias, duets or trios, so that different numbers could be arranged around their own poetic meter. And the social norms of organizing libretti according to these rules really did persist throughout the first half of the 1800s, which overlapped with the early period of Verdi's operatic output. Generally speaking, scholars divide Verdi's career as a composer into three periods, the early, middle, and late period. The early period spanned the years of 1839 to 1853, encompassing all of his operas from Oberto through La Traviata. And the early period is still considered to be linked stylistically to the operas of the bel canto style, really following in the footsteps of Rossini. Verdi picked up where the bel canto composers left off, but what made him such a success was that he was able to bring a touch of individuality and dramatic romance to the established conventions of the time. And although it is true that Verdi's early period does include many instances where these traditional forms were altered or even completely ignored, the works of this period overall maintain the underlying structure established by Rossini with traditionally constructed libretti. After La Traviata, Verdi deliberately embarked on bringing a new compositional style to the opera stage, and the years from 1855 to 1881 define his middle period, encompassing the operas after La Traviata through to and including Aida, as well as some revised versions of earlier operas such as Simon Bocanegra. Scholars often discuss this period as being one of expansion for Verdi, where everything starts to get bigger. The length of the operas begin to grow, the length of the cast starts growing, and the traditional love triangle structure is expanded and made more complicated with more secondary characters added into the mixture. And even the geographical locations of the opera plots began to broaden, allowing Verdi to experiment with new and interesting compositional sounds designed to portray in the music a change of locale on the stage. 
This is also the period where Verdi started writing music in a way that forced the style of singing to begin evolving. As orchestras began to grow in the number of instruments, we also have new timbres and wider ranges being introduced into the mix. So singers needed to be able to pierce through the texture of the orchestra because the volume of sound had just increased dramatically from, say, 50 to 100 years ago. Voices needed to become a little bit bigger and heavier in order to slice through the orchestra or get out over top of this bigger sound that was being created. And it is the repertoire of Verdi's middle period that created and in many ways forced into being what we call the lirico spinto voice, a voice that lived somewhere between the lighter lyrical sound of the bel canto and the most vocally taxing dramatic roles of Richard Wagner. To balance the growth of the orchestra and produce the dramatic effect that Verdi was after, lyrico spinto singing was needed, singing that had push or oomph behind it, as well as squillo, which is an Italian word for the ability to slice through the orchestra like a knife. It is in this period that Verdi also began searching for libretti that offered him alternatives to the fixed traditional forms that we had in his earlier period. And it is in the works of the middle period that Verdi began to strongly manipulate the traditional forms more and more to suit the needs of the drama. Now, although it is hard for us to imagine Verdi's opus of works ending with Aida, in truth, both Otello and Falstaff, his final work, almost did not come into being at all. With the success of Aida, Verdi decided in 1872 that it was time to retire, and he was content with the very successful Aida being his last stage work. This doesn't mean that Verdi stopped composing and working altogether. He did begin composing his famous Requiem in 1874, and followed this by a string quartet and he continued to travel across Europe, promoting his operas and getting involved with new productions. However, he was concerned that nearing the age of 70, to compose a new opera would be too large of an undertaking at that point in his life. Verdi's retirement did not please Giulio Ricordi, who ran the family business of Casa Ricordi Publishing, which had been Verdi's publisher for decades. Ricordi believed that Verdi had more in him to give, and he felt it would be a lucrative endeavor for both of them if Verdi wrote another opera. He teamed up with Arrigo Boito, one of Verdi's librettist friends, and the two concocted a plan to try and coax Verdi out of opera retirement. They knew that Verdi loved the works of Shakespeare, and that he had loved the process of writing an opera based on Macbeth in 1847. And knowing that Verdi had long desired to write an opera on King Lear, but had abandoned the idea, saying that it was too complicated for an opera, Ricordi and Boito set out to find a Shakespeare play with a fairly straightforward plot that could successfully be adapted to the stage, but was also interesting enough that Verdi would be tempted to consider working on it. They chose Shakespeare's Othello and went so far as to write a fairly complete first draft of the libretto before even mentioning the idea to Verdi. So they were really scheming behind his back. So they just casually mentioned the idea at a dinner party in 1879, and Verdi brushed the whole thing aside. 
But Ricordi and Boito did not give up. And over the course of several years, they convinced the legendary composer to reconsider. They promised him that he could call the whole thing off at any moment, right up until the day of the premiere, if he so desired. And Verdi began to take their suggestion seriously. And this is when we move into his late period. With the composer finally ready to write a new opera, Boito began working very closely with Verdi in revising their initial draft of the libretto, and plans for the new production of Otello began to form in the utmost secrecy. Verdi chose his friend Franco Faccio to conduct the premiere, and he also cast the opera with his top-choice singers. The famous tenor Francesco Tamagna was to sing Otello, and after much searching and secret shopping for sopranos, Verdi and Boito decided on Romilda Pantaleone, who was cast as Desdemona, and the highly acclaimed singer-actor Victor Morel was chosen to sing the role of Iago. And of course, the opera was to be premiered at La Scala in Milan. All of these plans were laid long before the public got wind of the fact that the great Giuseppe Verdi was writing a new opera. But nonetheless, when word did get out, singers, conductors, and impresarios from all across Europe were vying to get in on the production in some way or another. As work began to take shape, Verdi wrestled with what to call the opera. He was torn between calling it Otello or Iago, the two main male characters. And in a letter to Boito written in 1886, he made his decision saying this. He, meaning Iago, is the demon who moves everything, but Otello is the one who acts. He loves, is jealous, kills, and kills himself. And for my part, I would seem hypocritical not to call it Otello. I prefer them, meaning the public, to say he chose to wrestle with the giant and was crushed, rather than he wanted to hide behind the title of Iago. So if you agree with me, let us then begin baptizing at Otello and tell Giulio at once. Now the giant that Verdi was referring to was actually Rossini's Otello, which had remained popular in Italy ever since its premiere in 1816. And although Verdi may have doubted his own abilities to create a successful new work, the public certainly did not. And in the end, Verdi's worries were proved to be in vain, as the premiere performance of Otello on February 5, 1887, had Verdi take at least 20 curtain calls, and it was such a resounding success that Rossini's Otello fairly quickly fell into relative obscurity in the wake of Verdi. For me, the main reason why Otello is such an effective opera is because it is very much a culmination of ideas and processes that Verdi had been developing throughout his compositional career. And we're going to see and hear that culmination in Otello in two distinct ways. The first being that this was Verdi's second to last opera, so he had been actively composing for decades, and Otello represents a very mature compositional style of Verdi, where his ideas about pairing music and dramatic momentum could be fully realized and fleshed out. 
Verdi's music functions in several different ways throughout the opera, sometimes commenting on the stage action, sometimes enhancing the action or feelings of the character through specific effects, and sometimes the music is the action. Instead of viewing the text and the melody lines of the singers as the only vehicle for expression and demoting the orchestra to a more subservient role, Verdi viewed the orchestra as being inseparable from the dramatic action, as well as an equal participatory force in both portraying and reshaping Shakespeare's poetry. The music is constant in Otello, always moving forward, narrating bar by bar, note by note, and always carefully paired with what is happening on stage. As a result, there are very few clear breaks or endings before and after arias, and even the traditional structure of recitative and aria is broken down, merged together, and everything just flows seamlessly in and out of one another as the drama demands, so that we don't really feel any breaks in the musical flow until the end of each act. Melody lines are more intricately wedded to the expressing of character, and they're woven in with the orchestra, so thematic recall is brought into this opera quite a bit and employed with a poignant effect. The second thread that really sets Verdi apart as a composer and is most obvious in Otello is the composer's interest in the dramaturgical concerns of staging an opera. Seeing as Verdi had deliberately gone about fusing action and music, it is unsurprising that he became extremely involved in choosing singers, coaching them, and becoming basically a directorial role in the production of the opera in addition to the composer. He was concerned with everything from instructing singers where to stand and move to the designs of the sets and costumes, all the way down to the minutia of stage lighting. In a letter to Felice Varese, who premiered two very important Verdi roles, Macbeth and Rigoletto, Verdi wrote, I will never stop urging you to study the dramatic situation and the words. The music will come by itself. And as Richard Somerset Ward wrote in his book Angels and Monsters, Male and Female Sopranos in the History of Opera, Verdi was not the first composer to be concerned about dramatic and production values, but he was the first to make a fetish of them. The more successful he became, the more control he exerted. He goes on to write about the era before Verdi, that of Rossini, Donizetti, and Bellini, explaining it this way. It was a singer's world. Composers were hired hands. Verdi would not change this system overnight, but in the course of his 55-year career, he eventually changed every single part of it. Most of all, Verdi changed the relationship between drama and music. He did not see them as separate departments, and he was not prepared to let singers do so either. And so in Otello, we get the culmination of all the slow changes that Verdi was making throughout his career, because in Otello, he was able to demand whatever he wanted, and he could be involved in every single aspect of the creative process. 
And we have lots of evidence of this in documents that have survived from Verdi's time. We actually have detailed production notes for six of Verdi's operas, one of which was Otello, that Ricordi published separately, kind of like a guideline for any future productions of the operas. And in these guidelines, we actually have diagrams that Verity wrote out that show exactly when characters are supposed to move, what direction they're supposed to move in, the certain notes or motives in the score that need to be paired with their action. And so it's as if Verity could map out bar by bar what he wanted to happen on stage. And it's as if he was thinking of things in a very cinematic way, kind of seeing the action in his mind's eye as it all unfolded. Now that we know more about the evolution of Verdi's musical style, as well as the defining characteristics of his late style, we are going to see how everything we have talked about comes together in Otello. And what we're going to do is go through the plot synopsis, and as we go through it, I've woven together the discussion of the plot and the discussion of the music so that we can talk about how the music is functioning and hear lots of examples of this kind of action and music pairing. Alright, starting with Act 1. The opera opens with one of the most fantastic musical storms in Western history. There is no prelude or overture. We are just launched into the action with an orchestral crash of thunder and lightning. There's a cluster of notes sustained in the organ, and this creates a dissonant underpinning to the entire storm sequence. Rapid patterns of 16th notes in the low strings can be heard and woodwinds act as the tossing and turning of the ocean. The upper woodwinds play the role of the wind whistling up and down through the chromatic passages and the brass oscillates back and forth adding to the feeling of water rocking the ship. The brass is also paired with percussion for sudden crashes of thunder and lightning and Verdi literally writes everything into the score. He plans it all out very cinematically as if he could really imagine the whole thing unfolding in his mind. All the people on the shore are watching Otello's ship being battered by the ocean and we hear the chorus cry una vela meaning a sail and they sing this as the ship comes into view. They are anxiously awaiting the safe return of this ship since Otello is the governor of Cyprus and he is also the commander of the Venetian fleet and he's returning from a battle against the Turks in which the Turks were trying to invade Cyprus. So they're really hoping for the safe return of their leader. They hear horn calls coming from the ship and we hear them coming from the orchestra and the whole chorus is watching in suspense as the fleet is nearly swallowed by the storm. In this opening scene, the music really is the action. So let's give it a listen.
When Otello and his flagships arrive safely back to port, he disembarks and announces the destruction of the Turkish fleet. We then meet Iago, who is Otello's ensign, and Rodrigo, a wealthy nobleman who is in love with Otello's Venetian bride, Desdemona. Rodrigo is bitter that Desdemona fell in love with and married Otello instead of him, and Iago sees this bitterness as the perfect opportunity to use Rodrigo in his larger scheme to bring down Otello. Iago is just full of hatred towards Otello, just seething with jealousy at his success, and he's furious that Otello appointed Cassio as the new commander of the navy instead of him. Iago promises to help Rodrigo seduce Desdemona if he will help him dispose of Cassio. Rodrigo agrees, and as the people of Cyprus begin to celebrate Otello's victory, Iago proposes a toast. Cassio initially refuses to drink, being very responsible, but as Iago urges him not to turn down a salute to Otello's beautiful wife, Cassio agrees out of respect and Iago and Rodrigo work to get Cassio as drunk as possible, knowing it will make him more and more easily provoked into violence. They pour him more and more wine, and through a rousing drinking song, Verdi uses the low instruments of the orchestra, most noticeably the bassoon, to depict the effects of the alcohol on the men. And so with each repeated strophe of the song, there is a kind of sloppy swagger that gets stronger and stronger in the music, really brilliantly depicting their growing drunkenness. Iago then provokes Cassio into a fight with Rodrigo, and although the other men attempt to break things up, the fight gets out of hand, and one of the men, Montano, is left badly wounded. All the ruckus brings Otello to the scene, and in his first violent burst of anger, he demands to know what is going on. Even Desdemona is roused from her sleep by all the commotion, and this adds fuel to Otello's annoyance with the men. Otello turns to Iago, demanding to know what has happened, and Iago denies any involvement and simply points out the disgrace of Cassio's drunken state and violent actions. Otello immediately demotes Cassio, stripping him of his new promotion, and says that everyone must leave. As quiet and calm is restored, the act ends with Desdemona and Otello's first love duet, where we get to see and hear the depths of their love in its purest form, not yet poisoned by Iago's scheming. They recall the reasons why they fell in love, and overcome with joy and passion, they kiss, and at that moment, we hear Verdi's kiss motif for the first time in the orchestra. Now, this motif is very important in the opera. It will occur again and again 
at very specific and important moments. So I want us to just hear the melody kind of isolated on its own so you can hear what the kiss motif sounds like. Now we're going to hear the kiss motif in the context of the duet. The motif is repeated three times and Otello kisses Desdemona on the third iteration of it. And along with the kiss motif, listen to how Verdi works the motif with a passionate buildup in the orchestra. It really is a beautiful moment. Moving into Act 2, we have a dark musical statement that opens the act in the bassoon and the cellos, followed by repeats of this in the clarinets and the violas. A calmer theme begins to form, but it is short-lived as the prelude moves back into this darker atmosphere that it started with. Now we are going to hear just the first few moments of this opening theme, as not only does it set up the action of Act 2, but it will actually come back later. The music will be recalled later in the opera, amplifying its meaning. important turning point in the opera as we immediately start to see Iago working to plant the seeds of jealousy in Otello's mind. Cassio naively goes to Iago for help in getting back into Otello's good graces and Iago suggests that he go to Desdemona as Desdemona might be more successful in pleading his case. Cassio leaves and Iago takes center stage to sing one of the most famous moments in the opera, the Credo. 
In Latin, the word credo translates to I believe, and it usually refers to the third section of the Mass Ordinary in Catholic liturgy, where the beliefs of the faith are listed, beginning with things like credo in unum deum, patrum omnipotentum, factorum celi et terra, meaning I believe in one God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and so forth. But here, the sinister themes of the Act II prelude are heard again, and Iago begins to list all the evil, terrible, and nihilistic beliefs that he harbors, sentiments that are the absolute antithesis to the traditional credo audiences would have been familiar with at the premiere, making it feel all the more evil. And as we listen to a clip of the beginning of the Credo, listen for the themes that we just heard a moment ago, how the theme from the Act II opening is twisted into something much darker and much more sinister. Now the music that we just heard also includes the jealousy motif, which is another one of those reoccurring musical themes that Verdi uses throughout the opera. So we're going to listen to it again, just the motif itself, so you can really get the sound of it in your ear. As he finishes the credo, Otello enters the room, consumed in his diplomatic affairs. At the back of the stage, Cassio approaches Desdemona as she and Emilia are walking in the garden. They can be seen talking, but we don't hear their conversation. Iago pretends not to notice Otello and mutters to himself that he is deeply worried. Otello questions Iago as to the matter troubling him, and Iago becomes evasive, refusing to give a straight answer. This angers Otello, and we get another violent outburst in the orchestra, the music revealing to us once again that Otello is prone to such extremes. 
Finally, Iago reveals that he believes Cassio and Desdemona are having an affair. And of course, Otello defends Desdemona at first, saying that it is impossible. But falling prey to Iago's psychological warfare, we see that a seed of doubt has already been planted in Otello's mind, as he says that he would need proof of Desdemona's unfaithfulness before believing such a terrible rumor. One of the most famous lines from Shakespeare's original version of this scene is, O oh, beware, my lord, of jealousy. It is the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on. In this moment, listen to the slithering theme that Verdi gives Iago, as it is equally as piercing and foreboding and conniving sounding as Shakespeare's text. Also listen for how the orchestra expresses what is going on in Otello's mind, especially that outburst of anger. garden and Otello turns to watch as a crowd of children and village people come to deliver her flowers and praise her beauty, purity, and kindness. Watching this, Otello says that he just can't believe Desdemona anything other than innocent. But unwittingly, she plays into Iago's hand without even knowing it. After the villagers leave, Desdemona makes her way to Otello's side and innocently attempts to plead the case of her friend Cassio, which immediately sends alarm bells off in Otello's mind, courtesy of the conniving Iago. Their exchange quickly sours, and as the scene progresses, the contrast between the sweet, gentle music of Desdemona and the increasingly agitated music of Otello becomes more and more apparent. Otello tries to brush the matter off, and Desdemona just becomes more and more insistent. In effort to distract her pleas, Otello says he has a headache, and Desdemona offers to wrap his head in a handkerchief he gave her. Unable to contain his growing anger, Otello throws the handkerchief to the floor and says he doesn't need it. And here is a very important point in our plot. Amelia, Desdemona's maid, 
wife of Iago, picks up the handkerchief and holds on to it as Desdemona begs Otello's forgiveness for whatever it is she has done to anger him. In an aside, Iago approaches Amelia and demands that she give him the handkerchief. She refuses at first, but when Iago threatens her, she relinquishes it to him. As we listen to this moment, listen for how the music sets up all four characters and how the drama continues to unfold even though there is a lot happening. Iago is sinister, Otello is rash in his reaction to Desdemona, and Desdemona is nothing but sweetness and gentleness. Amelia also has a moment in this scene to show the contentious relationship she has with her husband, knowing he is up to something evil and not wanting to hurt Desdemona. Otello dismisses the women, and in a moment alone on stage, he reflects on his suspicions that Desdemona is deceiving him. He sings of a grief that now shakes his whole being, and he bids farewell to love and trust, and admits that he believes Desdemona is false. The trumpet is effectively employed in the accompaniment to match his outburst of grief, and Otello is worked into such a frenzy that he seizes Iago and hurls him to the ground and threatens to kill him should his accusations against Desdemona prove false. 
Iago begins to weave his web of lies, telling Otello that once, when he and Cassio were sleeping in the same room, he heard Cassio speak of Desdemona in a dream, saying they must be careful to conceal their love. Iago goes on to say that the dream is not enough evidence, but he believes he saw Cassio carrying Desdemona's strawberry handkerchief a few days ago. The same handkerchief Otello gave her as a gift, and the same handkerchief that, unbeknownst to Otello, Desdemona just used to wipe his brow. We know that Iago now has this handkerchief safely tucked away in his waistcoat. And with Otello convinced that Desdemona is guilty, Iago can now wait for the opportune moment to produce it as evidence. The act ends with a rousing duet in which Otello swears vengeance on Desdemona and Cassio, and Iago, of course, pledges with great passion to help him in this endeavor. Moving into Act 3, the prelude forces us to recall a melody from earlier in the opera. This is the same theme introduced to us when Iago warned Otello of the green-eyed monster jealousy becomes, so we immediately know that we are going to see that green-eyed monster possess Otello in this act. Iago and Otello plot to lure Cassio into the Great Hall, where Iago can talk to Cassio while Otello listens from a hidden vantage point. As Iago leaves to find Cassio, Desdemona enters, accompanied by sweet music we have come to expect from her. Her sweetness is quickly subdued as once again she attempts to plead Cassio's case and Otello is all too ready to test her loyalty. He says he has a headache and asks that she wrap his head in her handkerchief. Otello sees that it is not the one that he gave her embroidered with strawberries and demands to know where that specific handkerchief is. Desdemona says she doesn't have it with her, and Otello warns her that losing it will only bring her trouble. Desdemona says that he is changing the subject from the matter at hand, Cassio's case. But Otello continues to demand the handkerchief, and things take a turn for the worst. As we listen to this moment, pay attention to how the music paints each of the characters individually, but also enhances the confrontational atmosphere of the entire scene. Yeah. 
So Otello goes on to outright accuse Desdemona of being unfaithful. He calls her a vile courtesan, and the orchestra again enhances this violent outburst of anger from him. She immediately protests, getting down on her knees, begging Otello to believe in her innocence. But Otello sends her away, and the music shows us how she is incredibly heartbroken, but she still maintains a kind of nobility, a very noble character. Otello is lamenting his situation with Desdemona when Iago and Cassio arrives. He quickly ducks into his hiding place, and Iago asks Cassio what brings him to the Great Hall. Cassio reveals that he had hoped to meet Desdemona here to see if she was successful in pleading his case with Otello. Iago brushes his serious situation aside and asks about his dalliances with that woman. Cassio says, what woman? And so softly that Otello cannot hear him, Iago whispers to Cassio, Bianca, who we know from earlier in the opera and in Shakespeare's original play, was the object of Cassio's affection. As Cassio laughs about his romantic adventures, Otello just assumes he is speaking of Desdemona, and the music in this moment sets up a strong contrast between Iago's light-hearted conversation with Cassio and Otello's darkening torment as he listens. Cassio tells Iago of a gift that was left for him by a secret admirer and shows Iago the strawberry handkerchief. We immediately know what Iago has been up to because clearly he was the one who planted that handkerchief where Cassio would find it. Iago holds the handkerchief up high so that the hidden Otello can see it. He then returns it to Cassio and continues to tease him as Otello fumes with anger in his hiding place. Bugle sound announcing the arrival of the Venetian ambassador, Lodovico, and Iago warns Cassio that he should leave unless he wants to accidentally run into Otello. After Cassio exits, Otello comes out from hiding and asks Iago how he should kill his wife. Iago advises Otello to kill Desdemona by suffocating her in bed and offers to take care of Cassio himself. Grateful for the help of such a friend, Otello promises to make Iago captain of the navy, the post he has always coveted from Cassio. As all the dignitaries file into the great hall to greet the ambassador, everyone is brought onto the stage, including Desdemona, who is clearly shaken from her earlier encounter with Otello. Lodovico notices Cassio's absence, and as Desdemona attempts to put in a good word for Cassio, again she unknowingly plays right into Iago's scheme. Otello publicly rebukes her, calling her a demon, and violently strikes her. And in this motion, we see that Otello's ability to control his anger is beginning to wear thin. Otello is given a letter to read publicly, and Cassio is called onto the stage. Otello reads the letter, all the while mixing in insulting asides to Desdemona. The letter reveals that Otello has been called back to Venice, and Cassio has been elected by the Phoenician government to take over his post in Cyprus as governor. Taking all his rage out on Desdemona, he throws her to the ground. 
This moves us into a moment where all the characters sing of their individual feelings. Amelia and Lodovico are expressing their sympathy for Desdemona. Cassio is confusedly marveling at his sudden change in fortune, and Rodrigo is lamenting Desdemona's eminent departure with Otello. Iago continues to work Otello towards his purposes in various asides, suggesting to Otello that he seek his vengeance on Desdemona as soon as possible. Iago then turns to Rodrigo and suggests that the only way to keep Otello and therefore Desdemona in Cyprus is for him to murder Cassio. Otello orders everyone to leave and Lodovico has to pull Desdemona away from Otello even though he continues to curse her. Otello works himself into such a state of near insanity, raving about the handkerchief and Desdemona's betrayal, that he collapses from exhaustion in a rage. Iago then comes on the stage and in a famous movement, presses his heel into Otello's unconscious body, a sign of disrespect and pride that his scheme is working. Act 4 begins with a prelude that foreshadows a melody in the English horn that is linked to Desdemona's upcoming aria. As the curtain rises, we are brought into Desdemona's private chambers, where she is preparing for bed with the assistance of Amelia. She asks Amelia to put out her bridal gown and says that if she dies, she wishes to be buried in it. Amelia urges her not to talk about such things, but Desdemona is no fool. She clearly feels her impending death, and her fear is palpable as she sings the Willow Song. On the surface, this song is simply Desdemona retelling a story of her mother's servant, Barbara, being abandoned by her lover. But in reality, this is Desdemona's cry for help. Every time she sings the word Salce, it is as if she is begging for someone to rescue her from the fate she feels is near. The whole song is constructed on heartbreaking melodies and hollow harmonies, and the melodic contour of the word salce is especially effective as a wail-like cry from Desdemona. As we listen, pay attention to the interaction between Desdemona's vocal line and the English horn. It's as if they are paired together, and the English horn is like an echo of Desdemona's heartache.
There is a beautiful quote from a letter Verdi wrote where he describes Desdemona's music. In it, he states, Desdemona is a part in which the thread, the melodic line, never ceases from the first note to the last. Just as Iago has only to declaim and laugh mockingly, and just as Otello, now the warrior, now the passionate lover, now crushed to the point of baseness, now ferocious like a savage, must sing and shout, so Desdemona must always, always sing. Despite her cries, there is no one there who can actually help her. Amelia leaves, and Desdemona kneels to pray, singing the famous Ave Maria before falling asleep. Silently, Otello enters the room with his sword, and this is one particular scene where even though Otello sings nothing for several minutes, every single movement was mapped out for Otello by Verdi in his production notes. Otello walks in, he kisses Desdemona three times, and we hear the kiss theme as he does so, providing a brief relief from the sinister music that accompanies his entrance. But when Desdemona awakens, the sweet motif fades and the foreboding music is back. He asks if she has said her prayers, as he tells her he is going to kill her, but he doesn't want her to have a condemned soul. Desdemona prays for God's mercy on both her and Otello. Otello accuses her again of being unfaithful to him, and again she denies it, telling him to bring in Cassio to testify her innocence. Otello, believing Cassio is already dead, tells Desdemona as much, and she is horrified. She pleads again for Otello's mercy, but he says it's too late and strangles her in a moment of musical horror that makes us want to simultaneously close our eyes so we don't have to watch the inevitable happen, but also leap out of our seats to try and stop him. Amelia enters, announcing that Cassio has killed Rodrigo, and from the bed, near death, Desdemona softly calls out that she has been unjustly accused of infidelity, but she refuses to blame Otello. When Amelia realizes Desdemona is dead, she accuses Otello of murder, and Amelia's cry for help brings Iago, Cassio, and Lodovico into the room. As if it somehow justifies his actions, Otello turns around to Iago, claiming that Iago gave him the proof. Amelia demands that Iago deny Otello's accusation, but he refuses. Otello claims that the handkerchief Desdemona gave to Cassio is proof enough, but Amelia, horrified, explains that Iago stole the handkerchief from her, and Cassio confirms that the handkerchief appeared mysteriously on his doorstep. Montano enters and reveals that Roderigo confessed the entirety of Iago's conspiracy. Iago, seeing that he has been cornered, draws his sword, and at the first opportunity, he runs from the room like a coward. As Otello takes all this in, he realizes what he has done, and he goes to the dead Desdemona, absolutely shaken with grief over the work of his own hands. Overcome with guilt and sorrow, he stabs himself and drags himself up next to his wife and gives her one last kiss, with the final reprise of the kiss motif 
echoing Shakespeare's sentiment when he said, I kissed thee ere I killed thee, no way but this, killing myself to die upon a kiss. And the curtain falls with Otello lying dead beside his innocent wife. As we have discovered together, this really is a beautiful and complex and tragic work. So hopefully I have given you lots to listen for and think about as you go into your next experience with Otello. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Metropolitan Opera Guild's first podcast episode. If you enjoyed listening and want to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes to receive automatic downloads of all new episodes. If you want more information about live Met Guild events, visit www.metguild.org. I'm Naomi Baratera, your host. This was episode one, and we look forward to having you back for episode two.